Let's turn to our scripture reading this morning. Scripture reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 3. I would like to begin reading from verse 25 to chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, 7. This morning I'll be having a textual sermon. And uh, therefore, you'll be opening up a lot of your Bibles. If you have your Bibles with you, whether it's on paper or in uh, electronically, please uh, just open to it. I think if you do, you will follow what I am trying to uh, share with you and bring to your hearts. All right, let's begin. And then after that, we have a word of prayer. 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither the Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when, as my text, verse 4 to 7, but when the fullness of time had come, God set forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Our dear God and Heavenly Father, we bow before you whenever we read your word. We are amazed indeed at what you say to us. And we pray, Lord, that this morning as we hear it, Again, we ask, O Lord, that we may indeed hear your voice speak to us, and that as you speak to us, that your Spirit may give us understanding and bring about renewed life and vigor in us, so that, O Lord our God, that we may respond to you in love, in joy, and most of all, with this thanksgiving in our heart that you are our Father who are in heaven. Amen. Dear congregation, dear ones to the Lord, have you asked yourself who you are? Really, when you don't know who you are, it's like having dementia. You will lose your way home. But if you know who you really are, it's a life-saving booster in uncertain times. Identity is about who we are and what made us who we are. 
Identity, please do not confuse it with image or self-image. Image is what we project or display to others. It is an attempt to show how we would like to be seen. Image is about our standing in society, all our titles, our prof profession, our possession, or even our lifestyle, how we lead our lives. Christian identity is not about doctrines and lifestyle, but it is rooted and it is formed by our being in Christ and our participation in the life of Christ. Paul captures this wonderfully in this short phrase, short sentence in Philippians chapter 1, 21, didn't he? For me to live is Christ. When we are unaware of who we are as a Christian, we are in doubt about our status, our rights, our privileges, and our responsibilities. Hence, often, when, despite living in our Father's world, we would lack boldness, we lack confidence and stability in living this life. We falter and we jump ship the moment we encounter the slightest of difficulties. And so uh, this morning, I would like to draw attention to why, to why who we are matters in such times and how we are made who we are. So who are you? What is your identity? If you're a believer in Jesus, you are a son of God. You are a son of God. But how so? We'll come to that. However, if you're not, this morning I pray that you may be persuaded to be one. Okay, back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 to 3 is really about justification by faith. All right? Paul explains the promise to that the promise to Abraham and the law of Moses were both given to point us to Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Christ had come to free believers from the slavery of the law. Believers are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Through faith in Christ, we are made right before God the judge. And Christ is our righteousness. We sang that this morning. And so the doctrine of justification is obviously very important. No doubt about it. But justification is not the end of the gospel. And often people focus so much on salvation by grace that we neglect this very important thing about our identity as God's and God's son and daughters, or what we call sonship. In Galatians 4, verse 4, we see the purpose of God sending his son in the fullness of time. First, it is to redeem those under the law. But that's not all. Notice the words of purpose there. So that so that we might be adopted as sons. 
God is pleased to adopt us, but only at the price of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died and when He rose again, He not only paid for our freedom, but He also provided us with our adoption papers, making us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Wonderful, isn't it? And of course, Peter, uh, Paul here speaks only of sons rather than sons and daughters, like in 2 Corinthians 6.18, if you have reference to that. That's because the idea here is inheritance. In those days, in those times, inheritance was reserved for sons and not for daughters. And that's where the connection is, right? Still, Paul was actually very countercultural in his very day. He said, you are all one in Christ. In Galatians 3.28 that we have read, right? The full rights, in other words, the full rights of a son, including inheritance, are granted to all who who belong to Christ, regardless of whether they are male or female. In this fantastic book called Knowing God, it's really by J.I. Packer. I think you should get hold of it if you haven't. J.I. Packer says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Now that will, of course, make a lot of us surprised. But listen to what he has to say. He explained that justification makes you right before God the judge. But in adoption, you are loved by God the Father. In justification, we stand before a judge who declares you not guilty. But in adoption, he gets up from his bench, this very judge, comes down to you, takes your chains off, and then he says, come home with me as my son. Packer adds, and I quote, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Even John is amazed. The Apostle John, he exclaims in 1 John 3.1. Again, if you have Bibles, open up to that verse. He says, see, on the King James Version, behold. I like that word because it calls your attention to looking at what you have. Behold, behold what? Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Behold, what incredible love the Father has given to us. Not only call. But that's what we are, he says. But also, here and now, we are the children of God. And so Sinclair Ferguson says this, the goal of redemption is sonship to God. Adoption is the goal of God sending Christ to us. But children don't choose to be adopted. We all know that, right? Someone has to come and 
and choose us and adopt us. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 points this out. He says, God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ predestined us for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God chose and planned for us to be His adopted children. What Adam lost, God's free grace restored us to be sons and daughters of God. For man, if, if you remember, was created to be the, the center and the apex of his creation. But to bring back the fallen world to its order and glory, God has to restore man to his original order, dignity, privilege, and responsibility. And you see that started already. When God unfolded in the covenant God made with Abraham and his offspring, right? We get a glimpse of that when, it is, when we read Galatians 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Singular. In the Abrahamic covenant, God pledged himself to be the father to those who by faith are Abraham's children. And so God's ultimate goal is therefore the gathering together of a new family of sons and daughters restored to what they were intended to be through Christ's redemption. So by grace, this is the status of believers. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is their Father. And that's who we belong to. They are his sons and his daughters. That's the identity of who they are. And his people, his people are their brothers and sisters because that's their family. However, you remember the elder brother in the Jesus parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I hope you do. I did uh, bring that out some time ago. This elder brother lived and served with the father, and yet he thought of his father as a master and himself as a slave and not as a son. The elder brother, huh? And exactly what Paul is saying in this very passage itself. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son. Believers, are no more a child or a slave, but a grown-up son entitled to the full rights of sonship. Sadly, and to God's grief, many Christians retain some measure of the spirit of the elder brother. Even after we become God's sons and daughters, we think of ourselves as slaves rather than as sons. We are sons, but we are having the mindset of slaves. And so we regard obedience in Christian life as a form of slavery. And this is not uncommon. The very eminent John Wesley confessed that when we, he went to America, and he went to America to evangelize and to convert and to bring about the conversion of others through his ministry. But he confessed he went there with the faith of a servant and not 
that of a son. God sent His Son to redeem us so that we might be adopted to be His sons and daughters now and here. See, a slave mindset alienates us from the rights and privileges of sonship. We turn it down. We keep a distance from God when we should be as close as possible to God. We find prayer a drudgery. In fact, we, we don't find it even a privilege to be able to pray. We find it hard to trust and accept our Father's love, especially in times of upheavals in our life. And so, in those very times, hopelessly, we become a victim of Satan's attacks and at the mercy of what the world throws at us. Sonship should be, and instead of all that, hopelessness, sonship ought to be our confidence booster. Why so? Simply because we are sons. And because we are sons, we are to experience and act on our given sonship our new identity, and our relationship. You see, in, in verse 5 of chapter 4, we see God's purpose in securing our sonship by His Son, right? Again, that's not all. That's not all. In verse 6, look at verse 6. Paul declares God sent His Spirit to assure us of it. Yes, He sent His sons that we might have the status of sonship, but He further completes that purpose by sending His Spirit that His children might experience the rights and, and privileges of that sonship. And the evidence of sonship, Paul says, is there, shown in the cries of Abba, Father. And that's the acknowledgement of God's children as they take on the identity of sonship and experience its very reality in your life. And Paul again says in Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, that this happens when the Holy Spirit is confirming our inward con conviction that we really are the children that's the wonderful thing about prayer. And as the phrase implies, this cry speaks of an intimate and an affectionate communion between a child and his father. Abba means dearest father. The cry is not unlike the cry of a newborn babe. It's the first sign of life. In this case, spiritual life and sonship, adoption. It is no wonder that the Lord's Prayer begins with Abba, Father. Our first God-respecting word should be Dearest Father. And only when we know God as Father can we come into His presence boldly and in fellowship. Born into God's family, we all are entitled 
to the rights and privileges of sonship. But entitled is one thing. But to enjoy and use those rights and privileges is to experience the reality of sonship. Not to act on our rights and privileges is to doubt God's redeeming love and purpose and our very sonship. Do you pray? Do you pray? Are you using that right? Are you using that right enough to experience the reality of His sonship? So because we are sons, we have to learn Learn, I mean, really learn to think of God in terms of Father and be more and more aware that we are God's children. I say learn because sometimes it just, it's just a casual word, Father. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, have you ever think that when we say, dearest Father, what it means? He is and no passage is more, instructed, more instructive than the Sermon of the Mount. And here again, turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, <clears throat> beginning at Matthew 5. On the Mount, Jesus described what Christian life and Christian community under grace look like. And you will notice the idea of God is the Father of the children of the kingdom really dominating this sermon. And let me sample some verses for us to see what I mean. Beginning at 5, 16, verse 16, he says this, Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to whom? God? No, he said more than that. Glory to your Father who is in heaven. 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of God. No, more than that. Your Father who is in heaven. And then 48, he goes on again. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I can go on. And there are more. 6, 8, 6, 14, 15, and so on. And then 6, 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than theirs? Actually, it would be very good if our boys and girls can go home today and actually look at this chapter from 5 to 7 and then tell me at the end of it how many times did Jesus use the word Father there? Heavenly Father. Your Father in heaven. Your Father. It would be good to spend the afternoon looking at that and may that very sermon also endear us to our Heavenly Father. I'm very sure that when you read that, especially what the Lord Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom, you'll come away with the conviction that the sons and daughters of the kingdom are a people who should think of God as your Father, 
your heavenly Father to be more precise. And I think it's a, it's a great way in which use, the word Father is used. Fathers are understanding. Fathers are dependable, caring, and loving, isn't it? They never forget us. They're always there for us. And they always will come through for us. But this father we are talking about is no ordinary father. Now, ordinary fathers may fail us. They may break promises. They can be unreliable. But our heavenly father is that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God. And he's our father in heaven. Why in the heavens? Why do we talk so much about the heavens? That he is in the heavens. And the psalmist in 115 verse 3 says it so clearly. No better answer can be there than this. Our God is in the heavens. Why? He does all that he pleases. All sovereign. Does everything according to his good pleasure. And then our Father is pictured. In Revelation 4 and 5, as sitting on his throne, governing all things in this universe as an absolute sovereign. And he's worshipped day and night without ceasing by enthroned elders, declaring, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation 4.11 Jesus mentioned actually in chapters 4 and 5 17 times the throne. It is not for no reason. God wants to send a message to the seven churches in Revelations, the earlier part of Revelation chapter 3, right? And these churches were troubled by false doctrine, persecution, apostasy and worldliness. But he wants to send a message to these troubled people, children of his. He is on the throne. He is in command of the situation even as he rules over all things that exist, from the cells in your body to the undiscovered stars in the galaxy. He's in control. And this God is your Father. Isn't that comforting? And the psalmist saw it no differently. They always praise God continually saying, The Lord reigns. He rules. Psalm 93, Psalm 95. Just use your Bible and you can cross-reference to it. Many more. Now notice, it doesn't say the Lord reigned past tense, but we don't know how, who's in charge now. Lord, he didn't say the Lord shall reign. Future. We have hope. But we sure don't know what's going on now, whether he's reigning. Nor does he say the Lord may reign. Possibility. He's Lord, because he's Lord, he may reign. No. It's the present tense, the objective tense. The Lord 
Jehovah reigns. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He reigns? And you are a son of that God that reigns. And then about life in the God's kingdom, back again in the Sermon on the Mount, did you notice how many times Jesus emphasized the all-seeing and the all-knowing and the loving care of the Father? You know, when it, it struck me when I read the Sermon on the Mount as I was looking at the Beatitudes. You read, you read that. Matthew 6, verse 4, about almsgiving, he says, so you give. Make sure your giving is in secret. And then he says this, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Everything is transparent to him. He can see. He's all seeing. And then he talks about fasting, the same thing. He says, don't let your fasting be seen by others. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in 32, he says about necessities. He says, the Gentile seeks after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you have need of them all. All seeing, all knowing God. But why the emphasis? I think in times of uncertainty and turmoil, Jesus wants us to think of our Father in that way. He, he knows. He knows your troubles. He knows your difficulties. He sees them all. Having caught a snapshot of the Sermon on the Mount, you would have noticed that the children of God the children of the kingdom have a father who is loving and who has their good at heart. And like the hymn that sings, No earthly father loves like thee. And the sermon again illustrates this. In Matthew 7, 7 to 8, about this whole thing about prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will open to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, he will be open. And concluding those commands, notice what Jesus says. 7.11 If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what? Give good things to those who ask Him. Wonderful, isn't it? Does it mean we'll get everything we ask for? Well, that can be dangerous to unwise people like us when we don't know what and how to ask. In fact, I think a lot of stress and a lot of mental issue is we chase dreams that clutter our lives beyond our capacity to handle them so that we can entirely stressed out. And that's not good things. And thank God, as God's children, we have a safeguard. Our Father has our good at heart. He gives good things. We are His sons. And Jesus says again 
in that very sermon, he says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? No. He gives us good things. And so if we do not receive the precise thing for which we ask, we shall receive an equivalent and more than an equivalent for it. As one commentator remarks, if the Lord does not pay in silver, he will in gold. And if he does not pay in gold, he will in diamonds. And so, we don't question his integrity towards us when we withhold, when our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be. In fact, he is our bouncing board if we wish to know if we are on the right track. And Paul's logic comes in here. Eight, Romans 8.32 again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Will he lavish on us all the higher blessings of grace and behold the inferior ones of providence? The rhetorical answer is never. He gives graciously. Blessed, the psalmist says, are the people whose God is the Lord. And so in the face of danger, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of upheaval and disruption in our lives, what do we do? Do we wring our hands in hopelessness or bite our nails in nervousness or grit our teeth? No! Why should we? We have a Father in the heavens who does as He pleases. We have a Father who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-sovereign. And we have a Father who is loving, ethical, and has our good at heart. Instead, what are we to do? We are to find our rest, our confidence, our boldness, our peace, our security, our stability in our sonship. Our sonship is our booster. But you all know, right? Like the COVID vaccination, we need a booster from time to time. Simply because the immunity conferred by the booster declines. Our relationship and identity in Christ is also dynamic. It grows and it can wither. Most of us can understand this in our relationships. Sonship is a living, is a trusting, and a growing relationship. Christians mistakenly think that the freedom of Christian experience means that we no longer need to make any spiritual effort to be spiritual. We simply do little or nothing and expect the relationship with our Father to just blossom like that. We just want to sit and we want to feel that all is good. To set aside specific time for prayer or to engage deliberately in means of grace such as Bible study or ministry or 
fellowship is seen as legalism. Why? We have to discipline ourselves. But on the Mount Sermon, Jesus, on the other hand, assumes that all these disciplines were basic to spiritual vitality. And he is no legalist. He's not against spiritual disciplines. His charges against the Pharisees were simply because they were they didn't behave and they didn't live as sons. They were slaves. They turned God into a slave driver who did nothing but place restrictive burdens on his people. Dear ones, worship and Bible instruction are about identity maintenance. In worship, we remind ourselves God is our dearest Father. In Bible instructions, we get to know Him as Father and we endear ourselves to Him. And the sacraments keep reminding us that we belong to God as sons and daughters. Being a Christian is not about feelings so much as living and enjoying our new relationship with God. We know that the vaccination booster really works when we recuperate from an infection and get off mildly. We know we have a relationship with God only when we exercise the rights and the privileges of sonship. Then we know it is real. And so let me conclude with a quote by J.I. again, J.I. Packer, the question is, what is a Christian? And he says this, I quote, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Who has God as Father. And when we, be, when we believers enjoy God as Father, he gives us peace and stability in the face of life's upheavals around us, submission in the face of frowning providences, and boldness and confidence in times of danger. We don't need to be unsettled. And I can't say the same for those who are unbelievers. If you recognize the blessings of sonship, I urge you, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent from our ways. For God sent forth His Son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Amen. Let us pray. And I want to also pray for the church at the same time. Let's pray to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think.